DiscerningHearts.com presents The Way of Life, Reflections on the Teachings of St. John Paul II with Dr. Carson Holloway. Dr. Holloway is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Nebraska at Omaha and a former William E. Simon visiting fellow in Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. He's the author of Magnanimity and Statesmanship, The Right Darwin, Evolution, Religion, and the Future of Democracy, All Shook Up, Music, Passion, and Politics, and The Way of Life, John Paul II, and The Challenge of Liberal Modernity, the book on which this program is based. The Way of Life, Reflections on the Teachings of St. John Paul II with Dr. Carson Holloway. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. When we're discussing the way of life, John Paul II and the challenge of liberal modernity, and in previous sessions we've talked about philosophers who lived at a time prior to the American Revolution, but whose philosophies did play a role in the formation of the philosophies of those founding fathers of our nation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, the sort of big picture with regard to my book's argument is an effort to uncover the roots of what the Pope diagnoses as uh, the culture of death. And in the earlier chapters, as you were saying, I trace that uh, problematic culture back to early modern thinkers like Hobbes, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, David Hume, who did influence the founding. Um, and so the question arises, to what if, if the culture of death can be located to some extent in philosophic mistakes that were made by these early moderns, and if they influenced the founding, to what extent is the American founding compromised by this erroneous philosophy? And that's a question I wanted to explore in the book, um, because it's not a, a foregone conclusion that just because the founders were influenced by modern thinkers that they were corrupted by them, um, they may have taken healthful elements and built them into a prudently organized regime. Um, or it may be that there were certain bad tendencies that influenced even the founding. And so that's something I wanted to explore in the book. And I also make the argument, I think, in the beginning of the chapter on the American founding that um, you know, things are usually a lot more messy in practice than they are in thought. Just because you see these uh, thinkers like Hobbes, Locke, Hume wanting to make a decisive break with what the Pope calls the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition, which he thinks is the more sound philosophic tradition going back to Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, just because those philosophers wanted to make that break, it doesn't mean the founders necessarily understood themselves as making that break. Um, and so I turn in the book to think about uh, you know, just to what extent were they influenced by these early moderns or to what extent can we see the influence in a way that's problematic or not. And for that purpose, I turn to the Declaration of Independence and examine it in light of the Pope's teaching in Evangelium Vitae. The Gospel of Life. Mm-hmm. You say that it is the most publicly authoritative presentation of mm-hmm. the Founders' understanding of natural law and natural rights. Important for us to, to grasp that 200-some years later, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and you can be, I mean, experts on the Founding who make it a lifetime study know a lot more than I do, and there's a lot of arguments and a lot of publications that were made around the time of the Declaration that advanced basically the same argument about natural rights and natural law. And rather than try to write a book-length effort on that, um, I just left it at the Declaration um, because it's 
it is, as I say there, and as you just read, the most publicly authoritative statement of this philosophy. It's the one that was written or drafted by Thomas Jefferson, of course, but signed on to by uh, the Continental Congress on behalf of the country. And it's, a, you know, kind of since then achieved this sort of authoritative status in our tradition. And I think it's, you know, defensible to look primarily to the Declaration, not only from the standpoint of the influence it's had since then, but also even at the time. I mean, Jefferson, in one of his letters later on, said, this stuff was just in the air. You know, he said this was the opinion of everybody on this side of the Atlantic, meaning everybody who was a supporter of the Revolution, and I just put it into, a, you know, kind of graceful form. So I think it is a, a, a good place to begin looking at kind of American political philosophy and, and what it involves. Well, let's start with some definitions for those who may be unfamiliar with terms that we don't hear very often, like natural law. Mm-hmm. What is the natural law and why is it significant? Yeah, well, you could go all the way back to the ancient Greeks who draw a distinction between nature and convention. And by nature, they mean that which is always and everywhere the same and that which is what it is regardless of human consent or human will. And convention is variable, and it is what it is because human beings decide that it will be that way. And you can observe differences, easy differences, between nature and convention. I mean, the kind of clothes people wear, often determined by convention. We don't dress the same way they do in Fiji, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, or through time. I just got done watching with my wife the HBO series on John Adams. We don't dress the way they did then. It's a conventional question to some extent. Um, You know, if you drop a rock off of a building, it's going to fall down. That's a matter of nature, right? Um, Mm -hmm. That's the same everywhere, regardless of what human beings say about it. Now, when you get into questions of natural law, um, there's a long tradition in philosophy that did influence the founders that says that there are moral and political laws of nature. They are what they are, regardless of human consent, always and everywhere. There are principles of political and moral right and wrong that are not always obeyed, right? Mm -hmm. Um, They're not always observed by human beings, but every time they're not observed, it is in fact an injustice, no matter where you are. And that's the context in which the uh, founders in the Declaration of Independence present their teaching on natural rights. Um, They they put the teaching in the context of the laws of nature and nature's God. Then they introduce the idea that there are these rights that are um, self-evident to all human beings or to all human beings who um, reason rightly. Now, again, that doesn't mean that these rights to life, liberty, and happiness or the pursuit of happiness um, are always observed. The founders knew that there were states in Europe and elsewhere, probably most of the world, where they were not respected, had despotic governments or governments that did not recognize the dignity of the individual. But the founders believed that was wrong. You know, they, I think I say in the book, and I often say it to my students, whatever you think about the argument between moral relativism versus a belief in the natural law, the founders were not moral relativists. You know, they weren't saying in the Declaration that these are our values or these are our feelings about politics. This is our tradition about politics. They say it's the laws of nature and nature's God. These are self-evident truths. And that's why they're proclaimed to, in the language of the Declaration, a candid world, right? They figure that it will be intelligible to anybody anywhere um, if we make this argument. So that, I think, is hopefully a good beginning as to what we mean by natural law and natural rights. Essentially, what I hear you saying is that they wanted to found something that was rock solid, Mm -hmm. that their arguments are so rock solid that they will stand the test of time because it's based on inalienable rights. Yes. 
And it, yeah, it will stand the test of time because it's rooted in the order of nature, which never changes, um, according to the founders. Um, and it's true that in their constitution building work, they thought it was necessary, and I think they were right, to take into account things besides human nature. Anytime you're establishing forms of government for a people, you have to take into account things that really are only conventional, like their habits, their customs, and what they're used to. Um, in fact, I think some people might argue with me about this, but one could make the argument that the founders chose a democratic Republican form of government because they thought, and they use language like this, it's the most suitable to the genius of the American people, meaning the character of the American people. They might not have held that government must everywhere and always be democratically organized, but it must always respect individual rights. That's rock solid, that's based on nature, and there's really no variability there, um, or there shouldn't be. There are, like we said earlier, deviations, acts of injustice, but that's the minimal political ethic that they were trying to establish for the country. What was very different about Americans' Declaration of Independence and, say, what was happening at the same time in France, which was influenced by those early philosophies mm -hmm. as well, is that in America they acknowledged God as the creator mm -hmm. of these natural laws. Yeah, the French Revolution turned out to be very hostile to Christianity, um, and I'm not an expert on the French Revolution, but at least that, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it may have been, some, I mean, some people behind it may have been atheistic, but it was at least it was anti-Christian. It was definitely anti-clerical, right? It was hostile to the Catholic Church, but it was also um, hostile to the Christian tradition. In fact, in the last chapter of my book, I mentioned that the Pope, in his last book, entitled Memory and Identity, which is a book-length interview that was released the month that he died, says that the Enlightenment movement, which did influence both the American Revolution and the French Revolution, but he says the Enlightenment was hostile to what Europe had become as a result of evangelization. Um, but you see that influence a lot more clearly in the French Revolution, which was more obviously anti-Christian, whereas the American Revolution was not. I mean, it was anti-monarchical, perhaps, um, anti-British, but it was not anti-Christian. In fact, a lot of the people preaching the doctrine of natural rights at the time of the found founding were themselves Christian clergymen. You point out that the Declaration at least hints at an understanding of human life that transcends mere biological existence. Mm -hmm. And this is where I get into the comparison with the Pope's teaching in Evangelium Vitae, because if we go back to what I said earlier about that, the Pope argues that if we're going to have um, a full appreciation for human dignity, we have to understand it in light of its highest end. And we have to understand human life in relation to the life of God. Uh, and we have to know that human beings have as their end or their purpose kind of perfection of themselves through the gift of self with a view to serving God and serving others. And that's something that I think is an element that is underemphasized at the time of the founding. I mean, this chapter is, I think, in the spirit of a friendly criticism of the founders. And this is one of the places where I think they don't come up to the full level or maybe the, the, the full articulation of the truth that the Pope would want them to have achieved. And what I say in the book is that, you know, there, obviously there's nothing in the Declaration that the Pope would object to or that anybody who believes in the gospel of life would object to. In fact, it's all very wholesome, and it's a lot more wholesome than Hobbes or some of the other mo early moderns that we've talked about because you have a statement of the idea that humans have rights, and the Pope says the same thing, 
you have a statement of the idea that these rights are not just a product of human invention, but they're rooted in the natural order of things, which is itself the product of the creator. So again, the Pope would agree with all that. Um, you have the idea that governments themselves are instituted to protect those rights. The Pope says similar things in his encyclicals. What I find a little bit lacking in the Declaration is a thicker account of what it means to be human beyond that, right? Um, and this is where there's a little bit of a, a problem, I think. There's a hint, like I said in the passage you read, at higher things. At the end, when the founders uh, or when the, the authors and signers of the Declaration say, to this cause we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. I mean, these clearly are not just men who are concerned with comfortable self-preservation and mm -hmm. aren't willing to lay everything on the line for a cause they believe in. Um, but that's a relatively small, small part of the Declaration, and even it doesn't get into the idea that, it doesn't get into the sophisticated and highly developed Christian anthropology that you have in John Paul II, which is, I think, what he thinks and what I think, because he convinced me, is necessary to fully sustaining respect for human dignity. I mean, to put it as simply as possible, if you want to fully respect human dignity, you've got to know what man is in his fullness, including his obligations to God and his relationship to God and to others. And we have a full account of that in the social teaching of the Catholic Church and specifically in the Pope's uh, account in Evangelium Vitae. You don't really have it in the Declaration, and it's not really fully fleshed out in the founding, I don't think. And so this is a place where, without contradicting the founding, I think the Catholic tradition has something to contribute to America. Uh, by kind of filling in some of the gaps that aren't entirely present in our founding documents with regard to who we are and what we're called to do. Now, I may be offering a bit of a leap here, but, for example, Humanae Vitae is a jumping point. It's the beginning of what would maybe later become the theology of the body, that whole teaching about mm -hmm. human sexuality and our place in the world. Could you say that like the Declaration of Independence is like that, that first document that could have potentially mm -hmm. in the expression of the American political system, whether it's the Constitution or the Bill of Rights, could have broken that open more mm -hmm. what the Declaration started? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a good beginning point. And in fact, the Pope, when he would come visit America, I mean, John Paul II, was not shy of invoking the Declaration, which again shows that he didn't, he must not have thought it was, you know, so lacking that he couldn't put it to some good purposes. And in fact, more broadly, later on, again in that last chapter of my book, where I talk about what he says in Memory and Identity, he says, it's remarkable how the logic of the Enlightenment often led to the rediscovery of truths about the human person that are rooted in the Christian tradition. Um, so the whole idea that humans have rights um, is a way of saying that they have a dignity that must be respected by others, and that's a truth that is perfectly compatible with Christian revelation and the biblical idea that humans are created in the image and likeness of God. And so, yeah, one could view the Declaration as kind of a, an incomplete statement of what human beings are that can open up a larger discussion of what they are that will reveal what they are in their fullness. Um, and the, the incompleteness, again, is that the Declaration doesn't really tell us how our happiness is going to be achieved. I had a colleague once who, in a conversation at a convention, said, and I always kind of keep this formulation in mind. He says, you know, according to the Declaration, what is man? He's the X with rights. You know, we know that he has rights. And that implies a certain kind of dignity, but it doesn't tell us the whole truth about human beings. And that's why, again, I think without contradicting the teaching of the Declaration, the Catholic tradition has a lot to contribute to filling in a lot more of what we need to know about ourselves if we're going to respect each other. The other thing to bear in mind is that 
whatever imperfections might exist in the Declaration, I think another reason the Pope is open to it and open to the teaching of the Enlightenment in other ways, more generally, is because in some ways what precedes the Declaration and the whole Enlightenment movement is not some kind of perfect utopian Catholic society that we're now rebelling against. It's some kind of feudal society where even though the church might have been established, it's still the case that human rights weren't perfectly respected. And so I think, even though later on we'll talk about this perhaps on the last chapter, even though the Pope is very critical of the Enlightenment and might find things lacking in the Declaration, if my argument's correct, he's still sympathetic to it because it's a kind of understandable and even helpful um, reaction against this feudal society where there's really not respect for human dignity either because everybody's dignity depends upon their status, their social status, which is not true either. Could it be said that the Declaration of Independence has a lot of potential? Has it been fully realized? Well, it may have been fully realized at times, but certainly we're today not fully realizing its potential. I mean, I suppose if we were to approach it in the way that I think would be correct in light of the argument of my own book, you would look at it and read it and think, okay, human beings have rights to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. What is that happiness? You know, we have to delve deeper into the natural law tradition from which the Declaration springs to figure out a more comprehensive account of what that happiness is. Or again, when the Declaration begins by saying, um, what we're about to teach you is rooted in the laws of nature and nature's God, I think we'd also want to go beyond what the Declaration says explicitly to try to find out again from the natural law tradition, well, what, are the, what is the fullness of the truth about the laws of nature and nature's God? Um, because it would be more than just rights, it would be obligations, right, mm -hmm. um, that are not so much um, at the forefront of the argument of the Declaration. What power does the Declaration of Independence play in the life of America's government? I think of it as the moral touchstone of our politics. We return to it constantly, whether we're invoking it by name or whether we're just appealing to the idea of rights or inalienable rights or equality. Another one of the important phrases of the Declaration is that all men are created equal, meaning all created equal in their inalienable rights. Um, so it doesn't have any kind of constitutional or legal status. It's not a law that you can appeal to in a court, but it has this great power in shaping our debate. I mean, every generation seems to return to it, especially when there's a serious crisis. I mean, Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, made the Declaration, that, I think, central to his arguments against slavery, um, or at least a very important part of his argument against slavery. Um, certainly, uh, when you have the context of the civil rights struggles in the 50s and 60s, Dr. Martin Luther King invoked the Declaration, either directly or kind of in general, in terms of well, yeah, more he did it specifically in terms of the promise of equality, right, um, which he said was not being uh, fulfilled. And today, in terms of the pro-life movement, right, um, you have a fundamental right to life that you're supposed to have by virtue of being a human being. And again, where the Pope and the Declaration are on the same page is in saying that, well, the right to life is not a product of human convention. It's not something that we all get together and agree to respect uh, to the extent that we want to. It's a kind of fundamental beginning point that God has established in his law that has to be respected. Yeah, sometimes we get off track because a lot of today's political discourse is influenced by just kind of, I would say, utopian egalitarianism or just assertions of rights 
I, I, let me explain both of those points because I think it's important now that you've mentioned it. When the Declaration says all men are created equal, it means they're all equal in their fundamental rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It doesn't mean that they're all going to turn out to be equal in their um, life experiences or their attainments. A lot of that will depend upon, you know, how well they behave and also a certain amount of luck. You know, in one of his early inaugural addresses, Thomas Jefferson, as president, who was the author of the Declaration, spoke of the need for the laws to preserve for every person, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically it was the wealth that they achieved through their own work or the industry of their fathers. So, you know, he and the founding generation generally had no problem with the idea that some people would be wealthier than others by virtue of their own work or their parents' work, inheriting, you know, money, things like that. But they have to be equal in their fundamental rights. So sometimes I think Today, we maybe depart from the spirit of the Declaration when we just keep asserting equality in all areas of human life when that's not necessarily what the founders had in mind. The other point I would make with regard to rights is the founders were careful to say that human beings' rights are rooted in the order of nature that is also rooted in God's wisdom, which is rationally discernible, right? In other words, rights are things that exist and we can discern that they exist. Obviously, to me, and you'll probably agree with me and a lot of our listeners might, a lot of American discourse today just believes that rights exist because somebody asserts them, you know, and then mm -hmm. there's never any argument about how they relate to human nature. They could even be presented as rights to engage in activities that are not really good for human beings. Um, some people would argue they have a right to take, you know, narcotic drugs or something like that. Well, the founders wouldn't say that you have rights that are contrary to the laws of nature and nature's God. So there's a certain discipline in our thinking, as well as in our behavior that's imposed by the Declaration. You've got to be able to explain how a right is rooted in the laws of nature, not just it's a right because you feel like you want it to be a right. Exactly. Yeah. Are there other documents that have been presented over the last 100 or 200 years in other countries that are similar to the Declaration of Independence, that moral touchstone? Mm -hmm. The French in their revolution had a Declaration of the Rights of Man. Um, certainly internationally, there's the UN Declaration on Human Rights, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, although it's not just, I don't think, my American chauvinism, but other considerations that lead me to prefer the Declaration of Independence, because even though I argue in the book that there are certain things missing that we want to go to Catholic social thinking to get, the Declaration is far superior to a lot of these other later documents that are not as mindful of what the Pope would teach us, which is that if you're going to speak seriously about human rights, you're going to have to link it to the idea that God is the author of human rights. The modern tendency is to kind of follow what I was talking about a minute ago, which is assert rights, lay down rights, call them human rights. In fact, sometimes I think human rights is a euphemism to avoid talking about natural rights, because natural rights leads us into thinking of natural law. Natural law is an older tradition, influenced by Catholic thinking, from which many modern elites want to escape, I think, probably. But they should consider carefully the Pope's teaching, which is that rights will not be respected if we don't link them to a belief in God as moral legislator. And that's an idea that even Thomas Jefferson entertained, you know, so um, it's not only the Pope that has this idea. Fascinating. Again, for the Declaration of Independence to be a moral touchstone for mm -hmm. the United States, and again, as you jump off into the formation of the Constitution and all those laws, which are essentially a response to those moral underpinnings, it is something for us to ponder when we begin to think, are we in those constitutional laws still appealing 
to the the principles of those mm-hmm, mm-hmm. those morals, uh, i.e., the natural law. Yeah, I am dismayed. I think by the extent to which American politics often ignores the touchstones, both the Constitution and the Declaration. I mean, back in the 19th century, it was common when people debated legislation in the houses of Congress to talk about what in the Constitution authorized them to do it. Today, that's not part of most of the conversations. The conversations and the debates are all about, is this a good idea? Is it prudent? What you know? What are the costs and benefits? Those are all part of any sensible political discourse, but the discipline of the Constitution was supposed to impose a reasoning about what is authorized for the federal government to do. Um, you don't see that as much anymore, and you don't really see as much recurrence to the principles of the Declaration either and the kind of society that it was intended to set up. And, you know, there's been a lot of disregard of the founding generation. I mean, in, in the academy, there's a kind of dismissal of dead white European males as if their thought couldn't possibly be relevant to our comp- current situation. And, yeah, I, I find that problematic in our politics. The one thing the founders had, from my reading of their biographies anyway, is a profound sense of history. Mm-hmm. And that's why we go through this exercise of going back and looking at the Declaration and the Constitution for the value, among other things, of its historical mm-hmm. import and how it was able to survive. Are we lacking in that vision of history? Yeah, I think we are. And the founding is a good place to begin in making up that lack because many of the leading founders, the ones in whom we're most interested, were remarkably well-educated in the Western tradition. Thomas Jefferson, for example, was classically educated as a little boy. He was learning Greek and Latin. Certainly a college education, which a lot of the leading founders had, was of such a character that it was very different from the kind of university education we offer today. It was much more an education in the philosophic and religious traditions of the Western world and the, and the history of the Western world. They certainly knew a lot about um, the history of the Roman Republic and the Greek republics. You see this even in the, in the debates on the ratification of the Constitution. References are made to the history of the petty republics of the ancient world. You know, they use that language as if people would know what they're talking about. Um, so they were, you're dealing with a pretty well-educated public. Um, and yeah, there is a, I mean, America is a remarkable and in many ways modern achievement. On the other hand, it was created by a generation of people who were steeped in the past and knew a lot about history. And we would be a lot better off, I think, if we followed their example And to the extent that we still have this reverence, or many Americans still have a reverence for the founders, I would say, take that reverence to the point of not only reading what they wrote, but read what they read, you know, educate yourself the way they were educated. You have a much richer sense of the way America fits into the history of Western civilization, and that could only be good, I think. I would encourage people to read The Way of Life, John Paul II, and The Challenge of a Liberal Modernity by Dr. Carson Holloway. I won't argue with that. In our next segment, we are going to be talking about a man who loved to study and felt that he needed to come over to America to see why the government that his country in France had hoped would survive and and thrive wasn't, and why was it happening in the United States? And, of course, we're talking about... De Tocqueville. Until next time. You've been listening to The Way of Life, Reflections on the Teachings of St. John Paul II, with Dr. Carson Holloway. To hear and or to download this discussion along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Join us next time for The Way of Life, Reflections on the Teachings of St. John Paul II with Dr. Carson Holloway.